Chapter Fourteen of Sister Simon's Murder Case by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Fourteen. Lizette changed her dress quickly, dug into her shoe bag for an old pair of sandals, and tied a kerchief over her head. She started to pull on her raincoat, then folded it instead and laid it over her arm. Opening her door, she looked both ways down the hall. No one was in sight. As quickly as Jenny had run away in the orchid dress, Lizette fled to the door and out. Under the portico she put on the ring coat. Then, forgetting to button it, she ran with the coat ballooning out behind. It was easy running down the hill. Traffic was heavy on the bridge, but not with pedestrians, and she flew across and up the long slant of Main Street. The mind-reader's tent was closed and deserted, the roller rink booming with young people in out of the rain. There was business, too, in the curio shops along the street, but not down in the river park. Lizette glanced over it as she hurried along the high sidewalk. At the top of the stairs where Danny had paused in indecision, where Jenny had stood feeling so safe and courageous, Lizette also stopped. The rain beat upon her face and streamed down like tears. She hugged the coat around her. Over at the docks, the Triton and the Nautilus were moored, stripped of their pennants and with the chairs turned upside down. The ticket booth was closed. No more desolate place existed on the face of the earth than this small, soaked area beside the river. Go back home, Lizette decided, banked down this terrible urge to do something instantly for Jenny. Tomorrow morning would be time enough. Only Wakely would never give in. That was why she had felt it so necessary to rush away immediately. Sister Simon could be right about who would be next. Lizette herself. If he could see her here, alone, whoever he was, surely he would realize what a perfect chance. But there's no use lingering. The place was empty. She turned, hugging the coat, her foot on the step above, when she saw that she was not quite alone. Down by the wall, sheltered a little by the overhang of the sidewalk, the mud sculptor was at work. Completely absorbed in the mound of mud under his hands, he was paying no attention to her. She could even hear him whistling softly. For a long minute she watched him. He had been one of those present when Danny had become so frightened, and Jenny had found him fascinating. Slowly, Lizette sidled down the stairs. The sculptor evidently didn't know she was there until he stepped back to view his work. Then he gave her a mocking lift of the eyebrow and went on with the tune he was whistling. Lizette had not been able to see what he was doing before. Now it was revealed, the lovely head of a girl. No body just the head. The eyes were closed, but she was laughing, and her hair was fanned out as if she had just tossed it gaily. Around her face, unbelievably delicate when you remembered it, was all mud, was a wreath of flowers. That's beautiful, Lizette exclaimed. He paused as if he hadn't heard distinctly. Beautiful, she repeated. He lifted a shoulder. If you like mud... Tilting his head, he studied the figure. For all the interest he took in Lizette, she might as well not have been there. He stood in the rain until his black shirt clung wet to his big shoulders. Then he returned to his work, down on one knee. Oddly disappointed, Lizette turned to the stairs. But on the third one up, exactly where Danny had paused, she stopped. Something stirred in the back of her mind, something she had seen. Whirling, she stared at the man bent so devotedly over his modeling. Pico, she said it rather loudly, 
He took his time, but he sat back on his heel, finally looking at her. Her breath was short, but she had to get it out. Pico, why are you modeling Jenny's head? Sister Simon stared down at the letter in her hand. You want me to read it? she asked. Sister Joe nodded so vigorously that a tear halfway down her cheek slipped sideways. Yes, dear, and don't spare me if you feel I did wrong in trying to forget it. There were so many sins of omission as well as commission, and I, well, read it, dear. Sister Simon let herself down on the edge of a rocker. Opening the envelope, she took out the letter. It had been written in haste, half the T's not crossed, and the dots nowhere near over the I's. Its message was urgent. Dear Mother Joseph, I may be in the narrows by the time you receive this. I haven't quite decided what to do. But I was there three weeks ago, as you will remember, and I saw Steve. Those words were underlined. The pen from there on had trembled as it wrote. I believe I'll go back to the river park and have another look at him, and then if I'm sure I'll go to the police. He murdered Elizabeth. That was why she brought Diane to me that morning of the fire. She was afraid for her. She didn't tell me exactly. She said she had had a visitor the night before, and she was expecting him again, and she wanted the baby out of the way. I know now it must have been Steve. He may think Elizabeth told me all about it and that I have told Diane. So the only way I can protect Diane is to see that he's charged with murder. He has changed his appearance a great deal, but I'm sure I'll know this time. Love and pray for me, Damien. Sister Simon's hand fell to her lap. Here was the evidence to give to Wakeley, the meeting point of the high road and the low. Before her, Sister Joe stood, weeping quietly, her hands gnarled together in anxiety. Did it matter terribly, dear, me trying to forget? Sister Simon had to shake her head. How could she say that the chain might have been broken in time to save Mr. Waddy and Jenny? It didn't make one bit of difference, she said with all the confidence she could muster. But it will help now. I'm going to telephone the policeman right away. She smiled, taking the old nun by the arm to lead her inside, and Sister Joe's relief was pathetic. The central lobby was deserted. From up in the chapel came the needle-thin chanting of the sisters at prayer. Old Sister Joe, unable to hear it, was not reminded of prayer time. She sat down on the stairs and mopped her wrinkled cheeks with her handkerchief. Sister Simon dialed the number she had come to know by heart in the past few days. A young policeman answered and summoned Wakeley. She read him the letter. "'That's good, sister,' he said, as she ended, but without the elation she had expected. "'It ties up the loose bits. We've got the guy under lock and key. I gave you a ring a while ago, but they couldn't locate you. Yeah, all we need is his confession.' The nun was surprised at herself for feeling deflated. "'What a relief!' Then with all the enthusiasm she could gather, she asked, "'Who is it?' I don't suppose you know Lou, the woman from the shooting gallery? That's hardly your beat. Well, Lou is a man. He hasn't admitted a thing, but the fingerprints will sew it all up. We got his prints and a whole slew of others off bottles and stuff in the trailer, so as soon as we get the identification on them from Washington, we'll round up his playmates, too. This was a toughie, sister. It's a great feeling to have it licked. Tell us that she can sleep for a week now. Nothing to worry about. 
She's safe. Indeed, I'll tell her, Sister Simon promised. Congratulations, Chief. She laid down the telephone and nodded and smiled at Sister Joe. In a minute she would write it all out for her, every detail, and reassure her again. But right now she would call Lizette. She dialed again. A girl answered. The sister asked for Lizette. But if she's asleep, don't wake her, she added. I have some very good news for her, but it can wait. Did they catch him, sister? Practically. Oh, boy, wait till I tell her. There was the clatter of the phone being laid down. The interval was rather long. As the minutes went by, Sister Simon grew impatient. Surely it wasn't too much to expect the girl, it had sounded like Tony, to come right back. She could imagine Butterball Tony perched on Lizette's bed, chattering away. She was ready to hang up when a voice finally came. Sister, I'm sorry it took so long. I was hunting Liz, but she's not here. Not there? Tony, where did you look? Well, in her room, in the shower room, and Hazel was just in from the cafeteria, and she wasn't over there. I can't imagine. Just a minute, sister. There was a murmur, then Tony again. Sister, Jean says she saw her leave a while ago. She had a bandana and a raincoat. Maybe she went for a walk. Perhaps she did, the nun said. Thank you, Tony. She hung up. There was no reason why she should feel uneasy over Lizette going out alone for a walk. Uneasiness had become a habit in the past few days. Sister Simon picked up the pencil. Steve is in jail, she wrote on the pad, and handed it to Sister Joe. She must break her habit of uneasiness now. Lizette could go anywhere she liked in safety. The old nun nodded. That's the proper place for him, if he's going around killing people. But it's a shame he went so wrong, because there was so much good in him. A perfect physical specimen, too. Only a little hard of hearing. But he had real talent, sister. Sister Simon looked a question, and Sister Joe nodded again. Oh, real talent. You should have seen the pictures he was always drawing, and the little figures he used to make out of modeling clay, or mud, or anything. She smiled and added, as if this were a confidential matter. I always said he could have been a wonderful artist. Pico watched the girl run up the stairs to Main Street. She hadn't waited for him to answer her question about someone named Jenny. He stood until she was gone, then turned slowly and looked down at the blanket where people threw their dimes, now a soggy heap in the rain. At the figure of the camp cook, with its ears disintegrating in the wet, at the mother and baby, the dog and pups, finally at the lovely, laughing girl. The spade was thrown down beside that one. He stepped on the blade, jumping the handle up into his hand. Then methodically but quickly, he dug into the face. He had gone deep before the spade struck metal. He worked the object carefully out. It was a knife, short-bladed and stocky. Picking up a dirty rag, he wiped the knife, ran his thumbs over the cutting edge, and dropped it into his pocket. He left the spade where it had fallen, hurdled his rope fence, and leaped up the stairs two at a time. On the street he stopped, then strolled toward the shooting gallery. Up ahead, beyond the vacationers scattered outside the shops, he could see the flying figure of the girl. She was heading straight for Waddy's. Susan Chapin was having a tall afternoon. She expected quiet days working in a mortuary, but this one took the prize. Snodgrass had looked in a while ago and said, well, they certainly needed the rain and then gone mooching off somewhere, 
probably up to the casket room to move things around again. Young Lombard had decided to clean the garage. Ted had taken the hearse down to the gas station. Susan was used to being alone in the afternoon, but the funereal stillness today was too profound a reminder that down in the preparation room Mr. Waddy lay on one of his own slabs. She jerked open the long drawer of her desk and glanced into the pocket mirror she had set in there at the proper angle to give her a view of her face. It wasn't ten minutes since she had done a complete job of mascara, lipstick, and powder. She slammed shut the drawer and reached out to turn on the radio. The doorbell rang. Well, hallelujah, she said aloud, and tripped down the stairs and across Mr. Waddy's fine gray carpet to the door. She was just opening the door when the phone rang. It could go on for a ring or two. Good afternoon, she said with the detached friendliness Mr. Waddy had taught her. Never let a person's appearance impress you. Lesson number one. We meet people in times of stress. You cannot judge their status, either moral, physical, or financial, so treat them all with consideration and politeness. It was a good thing Susan remembered the lesson, because the girl on the doorstep certainly looked like a street waif blown in by the wind. Her bandana, dark blue, was not meant for rain, and it had run in streaks around her collar. The coat itself dripped puddles, but with the right makeup she would have been pretty. The phone rang for the third time. Will you please step in? Susan invited. I'll have to answer that, but I'll be with you in a minute. The girl stammered something, but Susan didn't catch it. She had to get the call. Mr. Waddy was very strict about calls. It was a man asking for Ted. He's not here right now. He took the hearse over for an oil change. If you'd like to leave a message. There was a second silence on the wire. Never mind, I'll get him at the gas station. He'll have to go to Newport. On a call? Yes, the voice said instantly. What name, please? He's going to Newport, the man repeated roughly. Then the line went dead. Susan hung up the telephone slowly. This was most irregular. Surely Mr. Waddy would never permit Ted to chase off with the hearse without knowing exactly the destination and the name of a responsible party. But Mr. Waddy was not here. I'd like to see Ted, please, the girl said from the doorway. Susan jumped. She had forgotten about her. Oh, I'm sorry, but Ted is out. Out? She looked as if she might faint, and Susan went to her quickly. Why don't you come in and wait for him? When will he be back? I couldn't say now. This fellow that just called, he wants a pickup in Newport. He's going to reach Ted at the gas station, so... Nobody lives in Newport. That's a ghost town. Well, even if nobody lives there, I guess somebody died there, because this man said so, and he sounded like he wasn't going to take no for an answer. The girl went dead white, and she seemed to speak with stiff lips. A gruff voice, would you say? Gruff is right. Muscles in it, if you know what I mean. You're Lizette, aren't you? Ted talks about you all the time. He sent Ted to Newport. Oh, he couldn't. No. There was more to it, but Susan didn't hear, because Lizette was gone, running down the steps and out along the rubber runner so fast she appeared to dodge between the raindrops. It's the big station right down on the corner, Susan called after her, but the girl didn't stop or wave or anything. So Susan went back inside and closed the door. 
She didn't feel right, not doing anything about the telephone message. Ted had been with Mr. Waddy longer than she herself. He'd have better judgment, and she might be able to reach him, yet. She took down the telephone book and was trying to remember the name of the gas station, when the door chime again laid an urgent note on the silence. A nun, just as wet as the girl, stood on the welcome mat. She had been running, or at least walking so fast the exertion had taken every speck of breath. She laid her hand on her chest and did nothing but breathe for a moment. "'Good afternoon, sister,' Susan said. "'Won't you come in?' "'Lizette Carter, is she here?' "'No, she just left. Didn't you meet her on the hill, sister?' I didn't meet anyone. Where was she going? To the gas station. Susan's heart was doing uneasy leaps. There had been so much hanky-panky lately, and all revolving somehow around the hospital and the mortuary. She's hunting Ted. He's down at Harry's, that's it, gassing up the hearse. I don't see how I could have missed her, the nun said, looking back down the street. Well, the way she chased off, she could have been to the moon by the time you came along. Susan said. Ted had a call to go to Newport, and I guess she thought she'd catch him. If you want to wait a minute, sister, I'll call Harry at the station. No, she could be there and gone while. Without finishing the sentence, the nun rushed off in the same way Lizette had gone. The big one on the corner, sister, Susan called. The nun waved her hand. Again Susan closed the door. Just for her own satisfaction, she'd like to know what all the fuss was about. Leaping through the telephone book, she found Harry's number. Harry? A man's voice answered her question. No, Harry's doing a battery. What you want? Waddy's hers? Just a minute. I'll look. I ain't Harry, but I'll look. Okay, said Susan. Even if you ain't Harry, you look. After a moment, the voice came again. No hearse. Did a man leave a call for him? Who for? The driver of the hearse. No. Harry, any call for the hearse? No call. Oh, well, is a girl there? What make? Don't be funny. I ain't. What make she driving? She's walking, in a raincoat. She ain't here neither. I'd have seen her. I bet you would, says Susan. If the hearse comes, tell him to get in touch with me, will you? Right away. I'll tell Harry. I ain't Harry. I know. Thanks, anyway. Pleasure was all mine, ma'am. Susan hung up. All she could do now was wait. Ted or Lizette, or perhaps even the sister, would show up eventually, trailing one another. She might as well stroll to the kitchenette and see if there was any coffee. Lizette, going past the filling station, did not even pause, because all of the stalls were empty, and the attendant stood under the awning, chewing a wad of gum. Newport. Ted had been called to Newport, where nobody either lived or died. Because he had been with her at the waterfront that night, he could have seen whoever it was that had frightened Jenny, or Lizette herself might have told him. That was how the killer would work it out. So Ted, too, would have to be eliminated. But if he knew the plot, if he could be put on his guard before it would be too late. He was strong, like a Roman gladiator. He could wrestle with an assailant. Unless he was taken by surprise. Lizette was sobbing to herself when she reached the top of the long stairs. Peering over, she saw that Pica was gone. She wasn't afraid of him, exactly. He had remembered Jenny's face and modeled it without knowing who she was. Or he had known. 
but what difference did it make? He wasn't here. Running down, she could see a couple of rowboats tied up. Not the one they had used this morning, which was painted bright red, but two old green ones. Blinded by rain and tears, she stumbled down to the dock. One boat was half filled with water. She fumbled loose the painter of the other and jumped in. The current carried her swiftly along without much help from the oars. It was a good thing. She couldn't think, much less fight a river. Reach Ted, warn him, get to him in time. The rain felt refreshing on her face. But in spite of the laborious tussle she had with the boat, keeping it away from the willow roots, she was shivering when the dock came in sight. Someone was standing on the dock. Ted! she screamed. But almost with the cry, she knew it wasn't Ted. It was a short, dumpy figure. Merlin, the mind-reader. She wasn't afraid of him. He would help her find Ted. Exerting all her strength, she pulled in quickly to the dock. Sister Simon didn't even try to keep to a swift walk as she started down the hill toward the filling station. She ran. Her wet white skirts flapped noisily, and her coif was beginning to wither around her face. People gaped at her what few there were on the street, and several, she thought, would have asked what was the matter, sister, if she hadn't chased on by. Cutting across the wide ramp at the station, she came to a panting stop before the attendant, who stood under the awning, chewing a cut of gum. Lizette, she choked out. A girl, has she been here? In a raincoat? Yes. No, ma'am. Then how did you know she had a raincoat? Somebody just called, said so. He had a long face like a horse. His jaw began to swing again. Was it a man? Girl, snippy. Sister Simon made herself take a long, steadying breath. What about the, the vehicle from Waddy's? Has it been here? No, ma'am. The nun caught hold of her wet veil, which was flapping in the wind. Looking up and down the desolate street, she wondered almost despairingly what to do. Where was Lizette? She sure was skinning along fellow remarked. Who was? That girl, in the raincoat. I thought you said she wasn't here. Wasn't. She went by, like she was shot out of a gun. Which direction? He jerked his head toward the river. You're sure about this? Certain sure, ma'am. Ain't long, neither. Sister Simon lifted her wet skirts slightly and stepped off the small landing. Evidently, Lizette had gone to the mortuary to find Ted. Not finding him, she had decided to visit the waterfront, alone, on an afternoon when no one would be around. You from the hospital, sister? Yes. Harry's out for coffee. You want to wait fifteen minutes or so? I'll drive you back. Thank you, I can't wait. Thank you just the same. She hurried away. She was getting wetter and wetter. Her veil slapped her back. Her shoes made a squishing, a very continuous squishing, because she went so fast. She certainly was doing all the things a nun ought never to do, being out in public alone, making herself conspicuous by talking to strangers, actually, in a way, chasing a murderer, because murder could be the terrible climax to Lizette's escapade. I have to stop him, Sister Simon told herself. If only she would be in the park, not on her way to Newport. Looking down on the river park, the nun saw that it was totally, desolately empty. One rowboat, an old green one, half filled with water, bobbed drearily at the end of the dock. 
Over close to the wall the mud figures were shiny wet in the rain. A newly dug hole was filled with water. So Lizette had not come here. Ted could be in the same danger I'm in. How plainly she could hear the girl saying that, insisting on it. And she believed that Ted had gone to Newport. She would follow him. Sister Simon leaned for a moment of weakness against the boat company's solid railing. Newport was two miles away. She was here. She had no money with her to hire a taxi. Nothing but her rosary. She had to do something about Lizette. Call the police? Tell Wakeley he had the wrong man in jail, that Steve would have made a fine artist? But that would take time, for she would have to convince Wakeley first that there was very real danger. And in the meantime, Lizette would be alone in Newport, the ghost town where nobody lived. Gripping for the crucifix of the big rosary that hung at her side, Sister Simon climbed the stairs and walked aimlessly to the curb. She had never felt more inadequate in all her life. There was no rule, no precedent, to cover the situation of a soggy nun stranded on a street curb, while, two miles away, a murderer made away with a victim she had delivered, although unwittingly, into his hands. End of chapter 14